We will be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. If you want to head that direction. Continuing through uh, with our series. Um, and we picked up a couple weeks ago. And, and this, you know, chapter 11 starts off at, in, on Palm Sunday. And so we'll be dealing a lot in the next couple of weeks with, with what that last week prior to the cross looked like for Jesus. And uh, so just as a means of, of recapping kind of what, what has already happened on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem and uh, the crowd was going crazy because they thought that uh, the Messiah had come, uh, which they're correct, but it wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting. They were thinking military leader, political leader. They were thinking uh, that this guy would be the one to get the army back up and running and for them to overthrow Rome and to become a global power. They, they were just very locked into that Jewish nationalism thing. And so as Jesus rode through uh, Jerusalem, they were, they were shouting for him. And it was like a big like, political rally kind of feel. But Jesus had something very different in mind. And so that was Sunday. On Monday, he goes to, uh, he's headed toward the temple. He sees a fig tree that is, uh, it, it has leaves on it, which gives the impression that there is fruit. But when you get up close to it, you look and you inspect it and you see that there's no fruit. And so he curses that fig tree because the point of the fig tree is to produce figs, not leaves. Uh, and that is paralleled to when he goes into the temple on Monday. And uh, just like the fig tree, the temple presented itself as a place to find God for the nations. And But when you got up close to it, you saw that it was a place full of corruption. It was uh, full of, uh, of misleadership that were pointing to the wrong things. Um, it was uh, a place of exclusion for the nations instead of inclusion for the nations. And a place that had come to mean little, very little about God. So he begins, he starts knocking the tables down and shutting down the commerce and just basically a, a cleansing of, of the temple because uh, he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so this got the attention of a group of people who decided uh, the best way to deal with him is to kill him. And they had made up their minds. And Tuesday uh, is a day when he starts to like uh, kind of wrangle with them a little bit. And so that's where we kind of pick up. That's sort of the, the context. And if you look at verse 27, this is the audience for everything we're going to study today. It says, They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So these are, we can think of it this way. These are the most powerful non-Roman people in Jerusalem and in Israel. Uh, they were the power holders. They were, they held spiritual power. They held political power. They held social power. Like they were, they were in control and everything that we look at today is aimed directly at that group of people. And so in verse 28, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. They say, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? So what the, the, these things he's talking about is, is it's really, it's his whole ministry. It's all his teaching, all his healing, all of his, um, deliverance from demonic oppression, like all the things that we see him doing, but it's the, it's the cleansing of the temple that really got to him. 
And so they come to him and they're basically saying, like, who do you, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this? We're the authority holders. We're the power holders. If it had didn't come through us, then no one should have said that. So who, who do you think you are? And that, really, there's, a, there's a, a bigger question being asked of all of us, which is, uh, who is Jesus at all? Like, who is this guy? What are we going to do with him? Um, so they ask him that question, who do you think you are? And Jesus, being our, definitely the best, uh, he's the best at everything. One of my favorites is how good he is at answering questions. Because they're definitely trying to set him up, and he knows it. And so they ask him that, and this is what he says to them in verse 29. He says, all right, I'll ask you a question. You answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they uh, discussed it with one another. And they said, well, if, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. They all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. This is their genius answer right here. We do not, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he, Jesus puts them in a bind, like on purpose, of course. Um, and I know they just kind of explain it, but let me like contextualize it a little, a little bit more. Um, if Jesus says, was the baptism from heaven, uh, was John the Baptist baptism from heaven? And the thing is, John was like, if you say, yes, it was from heaven, then you're basically confirming everything that John the Baptist had to say. And John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Messiah, was Jesus was from heaven, that Jesus uh, is the one, the deliverer. So they knew they couldn't, they couldn't be in line with John the Baptist on that because then they would have to say, well, God has given you the authority to do these things. They would have to get in line with Jesus as the true Messiah. They couldn't do that. But they also couldn't go against John because uh, the crowd, everyone loved him so much, they couldn't publicly speak against like everyone's favorite prophet. And so that would put them in a, in a, in a bad way with the crowd. And so their solution was to just lie about it and say, well, we don't know. And Jesus, of course, had to know this was coming, that there was no good way for them to answer this. And so they say, we don't know. And he says, well, all right, then I'm not going to tell you by whose authority I am. And he goes on in a second to tell, to tell a parable, which essentially answers their question in a, in a roundabout way. But, but let me... Let me kind of hang out on, on the religious leaders for just a second. There's th- three points I think we all need to hang on to, which I'll come back to in a minute, and these, some of these will show up in our community groups too. The first thing um, is that they, they saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power and their authority and their control. So these were the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. These were, these were the guys in charge. And Jesus threatened their ability to maintain uh, all those things. Second thing is that they were also afraid of the people. They had that, 
that same kind of thing that we all can, can agree with, where, where they wanted to keep everyone liking them. They wanted to keep everyone in agreement with them. They wanted to, they wanted to be seen as authoritative in all this in the eyes of the people. They were, they were, all, like, they were trying to keep everyone like, having the same impression of them. Um, so they, they couldn't risk their power, and they couldn't risk the approval of man. To the point where my third my third thing is that they were just they were willing to compromise themselves. They're willing to lie in order to keep the balance of all those things. That way they wouldn't they wouldn't have to let Jesus infringe on their power and they wouldn't have to compromise themselves in the eyes of the people. They just had to lie and say, oh, we don't really know. And they're willing to lie in order to keep that going. So so rather than get this really important issue right, like is is there a more is there a more important thing in all of of human history than who is Jesus? No, I, I don't think that there is. Like that is that is the most important question. And so, rather than get this right, is this guy the Messiah? We've been holding on to prophecies for hundreds of years that God's going to send a deliverer. Rather than like wrestle with this and being open to maybe this is what God's doing. They chose self-preservation, and it would cost them, and it would cost the people as well. So, Jesus, not wanting that to be the end of the discussion, he tells them a parable, as he often does. And this is one of those parables where there's, a, there's like every, every kind of, uh, every player in the parable has a meaning. And so I want to tell you what the different things mean on the front end, so that when you read it, it'll kind of all like settle into place. So, in this parable, in the parable of the tenants, the, it talks about a vineyard. And all throughout the Bible, vineyards are, are connected to Israel, connected to, the, the, to God's people. He, he talks about them as his vineyard. Okay? So that's, uh, the vineyard is Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants, these are the people that are there like working the vineyard. Those are the, uh, the equivalent of that would be the religious leaders. These are the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. These are the people that he is uh, fussing at. Um, the servants in the story, these are the prophets that God sent. This is uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, the, the, all the prophets of the Old Testament um, that God kept sending in, which you'll see in just a second. And then in the parable, there's, there's a beloved son of the vineyard owner, and that would be Jesus. So, the vineyard is, is uh, it's, it's God's people. The, uh, God is the owner. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servants are the prophets. And the beloved son is Jesus. Let's read the parable. He began to speak to them in parables. This is Mark 12, verse 1. A man, a man planted a vineyard. Okay, so God established a nation. Put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Okay, so he leased it. He put the religious leaders in charge and went to another country. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant, or prophet, to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and they kill, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, 
a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. I love that Jesus just looked at him like straight in the eye and Stone Cold just told them this parable. Like, this is you. This is what you have done. That God established this nation and he put, he put uh, priests and judges and leaders in place. And he would send prophets to them to speak to them and every one of them you rejected. Some of them you beat up and some of them you killed. And now he has sent a son. And what are you planning to do to him? You think you can kill him and then it'll all be yours. And guess what? You can kill him. He won't stay dead. (laughs) And that vineyard will not be yours. He's just going to give it to somebody else. And who's probably within earshot? The disciples. They're the ones that are going to take over the tenant. As tenants, they're the ones that are going to take over and be the leaders of the church. On Peter, on the rock, he will build his church. This this is going to be transferred. And so for me to think about those young guys hearing this story, I don't know if they connected it together, but they're the ones in the parable that the, the owner of the vineyard is going to hand it over to. And so he looks them in the eye and he tells them this. And Basically, he's telling them, look, by scheming to protect your power, you basically guaranteed that you will lose it forever. That's how this is going to work. Because God will take care of his vineyard. And God will take care of his prophets. And God will take care of his son. And God will take care of his church. Now, Jesus quotes scripture... And Jesus is not one of these guys that just like throws scripture out there just to kind of like deflect and things like that. Jesus quotes the Bible. You need we like we need to pay attention to what that is. So turn to Psalm 118. Because his use of this psalm is not random. And I believe it's a part of the meaning of this story and parable that we need to lean into a little bit. So one of the things in, uh, within Judaism that uh, we have not done a good job of, in my opinion, of like uh, pulling over into Christianity is their memorization of Scripture and their praying of Scripture. Um, the, uh, so like when we pray, uh, I said this in the first service, it's kind of like a jazz improv prayer, you know, like we just kind of. We learn to talk to the Lord as Jesus has taught us. And we see Paul doing that. We see it in the scriptures and there's nothing wrong with it. 
But uh, in Judaism, they pray the word of God like they they pray the scripture. It's a beautiful discipline. And I, w- I wish that we had both of those things together. Um, and, and one of the things about praying the scriptures and, and memorizing it means that, that they have like these massive amounts of scripture uh, written on their hearts, that they have memorized these things. It's, it's a part of it. And one of the things that they would do is they would, uh, whenever you see uh, Old Testament scripture quoted, they would say like maybe a line, but it wouldn't be just the one line that, that, that would be thought of. You could reference one line and yet the whole, the whole context, the whole work would come up into people's minds. So you could quote a line from Psalm 118, but the entire psalm would kind of would come to mind because that is, that's how they were trained. That was a part of their discipline. Um, and so when Jesus quotes one line from something, we can also think of him as referencing the entire passage. Um, so he quotes Psalm 118, which is interesting on a bunch of levels. Um, one of them is because if you look at verse 25... It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So this line, this, this is a, would have been a part of Palm Sunday. This would have been uh, the, one of the psalms that they were singing as Jesus rode through Jerusalem. That, where it says, save us, we pray, that's where we get Hosanna from. And so he quotes to the religious leaders, quotes the psalm, that everyone was singing over him the other day. So the whole thing would have come up and that memory would have come up and so they would have known exactly what he was doing. He's bringing to mind, like, remember when they were singing this over me the other day? Do you remember that? But he doesn't quote that line. He quotes the lines that come before it. Look at 22. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected. He's looking at them. He's just told a parable about how they have rejected him. And then he quotes in the Old Testament this psalm about the Messiah, about a stone being rejected. Like I believe that like these, like, these things would have been like coming together for the religious leaders. They had to be. It had to be moving closer and closer together. Like they're starting to get a picture of what's going on. Because he talks about a stone being re- rejected. So what it, contextually, like at that time, when they were building a building, you would have these stonemasons, and uh, their job was to, to, they had these big quarries, and they would dig out and cut stones for, to, make the, to make all the buildings that were there. And the better you were at that, the better you were at spotting what stones, what kind of rock, all that kind of stuff, and how to make it exactly what you needed it to be. And as you're going through different uh, stones, apparently a part of it, well, like you would end up with this big pile of rejected stones because you're looking for the exact right stone to start your building with or to finish your building or to make a part of the walls or whatever. You, you had to have the right stones. And uh, they were experts at doing that. And so Jesus is connecting the dots. He's looking at them and he's saying the stones that the builders rejected, a.k.a. you jokers right in front of me, you know. He's, he's like provoking them a little bit. And he's saying, you, you have rejected me. And there's some reasons there that I think we need to pay attention to. Like before we look at the other, the, the last part of it and, and come to a close, we have to pay attention 
to this rejection of Jesus. Because they rejected him for a couple of reasons that I think might hit too close to home for us to just kind of pretend they aren't there. Um, because they were powerful, but you and I are powerful. And maybe not, those powers may not be equal. But for these religious leaders, they, they, had, a, they had a territory that they oversaw. They, they oversaw the temple. They oversaw the religious like, moving parts. They, they were in connection with Rome to kind of like, make sure that all things stayed connected there. They, they had a kingdom, essentially. They weren't labeled as kings, but they had a kingdom. And you and I may not be labeled as kings, but we have kingdoms too. It's something we talk about here at Living Hope a lot. That if, if a kingdom is, is the territory where a king rules, then you and I each have a territory that we rule. It's like, it's where your stuff is. It's where what you say goes. And so if you have a car, that's part of your kingdom. If you have uh, money in the bank, that money is a part of your kingdom. If, if you, uh, any of your possessions, any of your, anything that you're a steward of, if you're a parent and you have kids, they're part of your kingdom. They think they have their own kingdom, but they're your kingdom, Right? <laughs> And so, any where if you, if it's what you say goes, then that's part of your kingdom. And these religious leaders saw Jesus, and they had an issue, and we can have an issue as well. And here's where it comes from a lot of the time. One is that Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and so here we are. We're we're trying to like with take our little our little kingdoms. All right, you know, so I, I mean, let's take me. I'm trying to take my kingdom and come before the Lord and say, I don't, I don't want to rule this kingdom. I want you to rule this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come into my kingdom. Your will be done in my kingdom on earth, just like it is in heaven. That, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what we are all called, called to do is to say, I'm going to step off of the throne of this kingdom and you're going to be on the throne of this kingdom. That's, that's what we're going for. The problem comes in when, when that happens and suddenly Jesus isn't running your kingdom the way that you think Jesus should run your kingdom. You're like, ah, I, I wouldn't do that. I, you know. And that's a problem. Another problem is when you realize that Jesus is a better king than you are. And you realize that he's a threat to your power and your control. Because I wish that it was one of those things where it's just a one-time deal of like, tell you what, let's, let's just, I'll sign a contract. You be the king and you, you, uh, you're over my kingdom and uh, I'll never, it'll just never be an issue again. And you sign the contract and you move on. Problem is, I might be great with this today, I may wake up tomorrow and be like, nope, I'm back on the throne. I'm back in control. It's my money again. It's my car again. It's my decision again. It's my, my time again. It's whatever I want to do. And the thing is, every single day throughout our days, at any point, we can elbow him off of the throne of our kingdom. And, and like, he's like, okay, you want it that way? See, Jesus is a threat to us. That when I'm, when I'm not in that humble place that I want to be, when I'm in that uh, prideful place, that arrogant place, that whatever it, it may want to be, and I'm, I've elbowed him off, and I'm seated on the throne of my kingdom, and he's like, hey, what about this? 
hey, here's what heavenly wisdom looks like. Hey, this is what the scriptures say. And I'm like, you shut your mouth. (laughs) Who are you to speak to me? By whose authority are you weighing in on my kingdom? And what happens is I begin to perceive Jesus as a threat to my power, just like the religious leaders sense that he was a threat to their power. Because he's not meeting my expectations. He's a threat to my power. And then sometimes, a lot like the religious leaders, I can, I can become so afraid of what people are going to think that I don't want to rock the boat or I don't want to like, ruin people's perceptions of me that I'll compromise on things. And so I'm studying this passage this week and I'm like, these religious leaders, I mean, they are just, they are just something else. And the Lord's like, hey dude, you could fall into the same exact trap as them. In fact, you do it a lot. And some of this, I believe, is, can be expressed in this way. Is I think everyone, everyone who's a Christian, we, we want him to be our savior, Right? We, we want to be forgiven of our sins. We want to walk in newness of life. We want to cross from death into life. We want to be a part of that resurrection. We want 100% him to be the Savior. But it's the Lord part. It's the Lordship part. It's the step off my, the throne of my kingdom part. And our old pal, uh, Dallas Willard, he, calls, he refers to that as being a vampire Christian. Because you only want the blood. <laughs> and that's brutally, brutally relevant. We definitely want the blood. We definitely want the forgiveness. But do we want, do we want the lordship? You know? The thing is, when we see Jesus for who he is, we realize that he's not a threat. <laughs> Like, I'm not threatened by you. I'm a terrible king. <laughs> I, I can't believe that you would want to be the king over my kingdom. And that's amazing to me. Why would, when, you, when we see him accurately, rejecting him seems the most absurd thing in the world. Because it's, it's, you don't fail to meet my expectations. You exceed my expectations. You're not a threat to me. You're a blessing to me. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I... This is how, how I was created to live. I see you for who you are. And that's why the verse, look at it again at verse 22. That's why it reads the way that it does. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It says you can reject the beloved son that God has sent all you want. But the reality is he is the cornerstone. Like he, he is who he is. So I can be threatened by him. He can not meet my expectations. People can say whatever they want. But it doesn't change who he is. So so much of it for me, and I think for us, comes down to are we seeing him for who he is or not? So it goes back to the first question. By whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. That's my authority. I'm the one that the builders rejected, but I'm still the cornerstone. What does that what does that mean? You know, we sing that, that, that idea of cornerstone shows up in songs and it shows, you know people reference it, but what does it mean? And and I was like, well, that's probably worth my study. So I go and I dive into it a little bit and there's discrepancies on what they're talking about. They say, well, it could be a cornerstone or it could be a capstone. 
Cornerstone is the, it's what you think of. It's the stone on the corner. (laughs) And it's the first stone that they put in place. And it is the most important stone in the whole building. It's the one that the builders would, they would like give incredible attention to that being the exact right one. Because that set all the angles for the building. Everything would be based off of this one, this one stone. And the entire, the integrity of the whole building was dependent on the cornerstone. If you go to Jerusalem right now, the cornerstone of Herod's temple is still there all these years later. Like, it, it's an important stone. And so he may be saying, well, you reject, like, you put me in that pile of stones over there and rejected me, but God has actually put me in place as the first stone in the building. But other people think he's talking about the capstone, which is uh, if you have two walls coming together, it's the stone, a stone that unites the two walls. Or if you are building an archway, it's the stone at the center of the archway that comes up and, and supports the two sides of the ark and it gives unity and strength to the walls or to the ark. That's the last stone that goes in. So he's either the first stone or he's the last stone. And I don't know if that's the same thing as saying I'm the Alpha and the Omega, but I'd like, hey, how about we not pick one? We just take both definitions and see them as awesome, right? He's, you have rejected me as a stone, but God has put me in as the cornerstone because look at ver- the very next verse, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. He's looking him in the eye and says, the stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing doing. He gave me the authority. That's the answer to your question that you don't know the answer to. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The next verse. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And then it says, save us, O Lord, we pray. So that whole thing of Hosanna, save us, is in this context of saying uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has done it. This is marvelous. God has made this day. Let's rejoice in it. And when we're calling out, save us, O Lord, Hosanna, O Lord, it's not only from our sins and our salvation, it's also save us from ourselves and our insistence on thinking that we can do better than you can. This is why I am in authority, because God has put me here to do it. Now, Mark got a lot of his uh, information from Peter. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. This is a summation of the whole sermon, which I could have just read and gotten to the point, but, you know. Verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, he says, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Once again, God's building a building, He's building a new temple. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And based off of that stone, he's connecting all these other stones, and every one of them is alive. And every believer throughout all time is a stone in this big building. And every stone lives and breathes and feels and works together. 
that we could bring sacrifices to our God. But we don't have to bring lambs anymore. We don't have to bring, it's not those kind of sacrifices. Now we're the, we're the sacrifices that are alive. And so Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. And the problem with living sacrifices is that they, don't want, to, they want to crawl off the altar when things get weird. <laughs> the idea is like, no, I'm, I'm going to pres- like put my life on the altar and it doesn't matter. I'm not going to freak out and get off of that altar. I'm not going to elbow you off the throne of my, uh, of my little, the kingdom of me. Like, that's not how this is going to work. I'm, I'm going to welcome your authority. I'm going to welcome you, ex- like, like exceeding my expectations. I'm going to welcome you no matter what it costs me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to welcome the cornerstone into my life. And so these religious leaders, this is what's crazy. I've said this so much in the last couple of weeks. It's like they were so focused on their power and their control and their like nationalistic aspirations that they missed the Messiah. They missed Jesus being Jesus. And for you and I, we, we can't, we can't just put our heads down and bury our way through lives, through our lives and saying, well, I'll take the blood, but I don't want the Lordship. I'll take the savior part, but the Lordship part, I'm not sure about. He's like, no, I came to do all of it. And I'm awesome at it. And I believe it all comes down to, are we seeing him for who he is? Are we hearing what he's saying when we say, by whose authority do you want to be the Lord of my life? And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. May it be marvelous in our eyes. It's beautiful. Now, this may apply to us in different ways, you know. It could be that, that speaking of salvation and of forgiveness and of life with God, like this is, this is something to you that is new, it's something that you want to talk more about, something that you've never really wrestled through before. And if so, I want to encourage you to just stick around after we're done. And come, I'll be down here. Just come, come talk to me. You don't talk to anyone. Just talk to somebody. You don't need to leave here. That that invitation that Jesus is saying, I, I can be your cornerstone too, is there. But if, it, if this is more in the lordship area, you know, if you've been resisting Jesus' leadership in your life, it, no matter how you're looking at this, it really begins with seeing him for who he actually is. By whose authority, you know. And so letting him remind us put front and center exactly who he is is so important. And so we're going to sing some songs that, that do that. They put the, like they remind us again of who, who he is. And everything else can, just kind of falls into place from there. And so let's stand together as our musicians come back and I'll make my way back there too. And But as you stand and just kind of maybe gather your thoughts, uh, wh- where do you think this does hit home for you this morning? You know? What are the what are the, uh, the things that stand out to you that you think you're supposed to grab onto? It could be a song lyric, you know. It could be a verse or something. But God brought you here for a reason. 
And whatever the reason is, Jesus and who he is, being front and center, is crucial to that. So take just a minute, just kind of maybe close your eyes, just kind of pull your thoughts to the front as we get ready to sing a little bit and remind one another in case we've forgotten uh, who he is.